I didn't get into music because I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be rich because you're already rich. That's a great feeling. That's the greatest feeling to go out and play, make people happy all around the world. That's Dr. Lonnie Smith, organist extraordinaire and 2017 NEA jazz master. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Dr. Lonnie Smith is a master Hammond B. jazz organist and composer. He's had a career that's been going on for more than 50 years and has been featured on more than 70 jazz, blues, and rhythm and blues recordings. He's considered one of the creators of jazz soul funk. He's recorded classic soul jazz albums like Think, Move Your Hand, and Drives, as well as album-long tributes to artists like Jimi Hendrix and Beck. And he's covered everyone, from the Beatles to the Eurythmics. His funky organ playing has been in demand by hip-hop groups since the 1990s, with bands like A Tribe Called Quest, OGC, and United Future Organization sampling his beats. Dr. Lonnie Smith has received many honors and awards throughout his great career, and now he's been named a 2017 NEA Jazz Master. So sit back, put up your feet, and meet a musical wonder, an old wise soul, Dr. Lonnie Smith. You were raised in Buffalo, New York. It's called Buffalo. Tell me about your upbringing. Was your family musical or? My mother. My mother was a vocalist. And her sisters and her mother, they just sang spiritual music, gospel music, you know. And they used to do radio programs on the weekend, you know. They would come over the house sometime and they would sing. And I would join in. So I was brought up like that, but I didn't play. Now, when did you start playing instruments? Late. I started in junior, junior high. My friend, Ronald Goins, he, uh, him and his sister, and that, she played piano, he played trumpet. So I would go over to the house. They were like, well to do. It wasn't as poorly as I was, you know, but uh, I sat over the house and sometimes they have to practice. And uh, I wait for them and I hear them practicing and see them practicing. And one day we ended up in the same classroom where just about everyone in the classroom played music. And uh, Ronald Goins had the trumpet on the seat, and I looked at it in the velvet inside. It was beautiful. I picked it up and started playing, and they, they couldn't believe it, so they took me to the band room, and I played it. Band room teacher says, it looked like we got a star in here. He said, you come down and play in the band. And it just came naturally to yeah. you. You had never picked this up before, and you just knew what to do. I think what happens if you watch a kid, which a lot of families don't do, if they watch their kid, just watch them. They'll tell you what they're going to do. Did your mom listen to jazz? Oh, love. She loved jazz, blues and gospel. She loved all of it. And she would be scatting. We would scat along together, make words to instrumental. So that, that got me going, and my uncles and everything. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. They loved jazz, and I would listen to that. Not knowing that one day, I had no idea that I would meet these people and play behind them sometime, you know. So it was really great, great experience. You began professionally as a singer. You were part of a, a vocal group called the Supremes, I might add. How was that? Did, was that? Was that a lot of fun for you? 
The singing was great, and we used to do sock hops. Was singing satisfying for you? Yes. Did you feel as though you were missing something, and that's why you wanted an instrument? Yes. Okay. My brother was playing bass, guitar, and drums, and guitar, and I would sing. I wanted to play. You wanted to play. It was like they were having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I sang my little song and sat down and wait till the next set and sat down to time to go up again. So one day we went on a place and they had a key, piano in there. I got on it. And you know, they don't want you to touch the piano. And I did. That's how it really began. I knew how to play the boogie woogie, you know, stuff like that. That's how it all began. How did you begin with the organ? What was your introduction to it? Oh, the sound. I love the sound. My angel. I always say that. Everyone has angels, you know, right from the beginning. I went to a store, Archibald's Music Store, and I sit in a store every day. I just sit. To closing time, he says, son, can I ask you a question? I say, yes, sir. He says, why do you come in every day and you just sit? I says, well, if I had an instrument, I could work. If I could work, I could make a living. I stuck with him, evidently. So I kept going every day and I just sit. And one day I went in there, he closed the place up. And we went to his house in the back. When he opened the door, I saw this. When you open a Bible and they show some pictures of, and the sunlight from the sky, the radiate comes down. That's where it hit me in the organ. I was sitting behind it. He says, if you can get this out, it's yours. I did. In the snow in Buffalo, you know, I was sitting in a pickup truck, my brothers and I. It was cold, snow. I take it home. I didn't know how to cut it on. I didn't know how to play it. I didn't know anything about it. So now what do I do? My very question. <laughs> so how I learned how to play was on stage. It was, it was hard, but I did it. I got with the Sammy Bryan group. They heard about me in Buffalo. They called me, and I went to join the group. How old were you? I was about 20, 21 or something like that when I first started playing. I started late. Most guys started when they were kids, you know, and I played by ear. And still today, I play by ear. The first place we went to play at, Bernie's Hurricane Lounge, Pittsburgh, George Benson home. I stayed with Ben, and we started playing behind a lot of Motown groups when they would come through. So I got the experience of that. And that's how you were developing your organ chops? Mm-hmm. On stage. On stage. Doc, you knew right away the organ was your instrument? Oh, m- yeah. Before you even put your hand before on it? Before I even put my hand on it. I didn't have to deviate. It's an extension. It's an extension. It's, it, it says everything that I want to say that I cannot say. It'll say it when I play it. It's a passion. I have more passion now than I even did then. And it's hard to say, how can you have more passion than then? Right from the beginning. It was great. Can you describe the sound of a Hammond B3? Mm-hmm. Everything. 
it fulfills me uh, uh, in my journey. It's uh, all the elements in the one, all the elements. Whatever you want it to be, it speaks that. That's why I love it. So you have to work it. And it's so challenging because it, it says everything that I wanted to, everything, it just opens up. You ever hear a person that has a cold, a bad cold, and they sound like this n- nasal, like this, you play the organ, it has that. Then you you hit the switch, tap, bam, hit that little slide over here. Is that opens up the earth, the whole heavens just opens up on you. It's like the expressions. Oh, it's so beautiful. Then it quiets down. You quiet it down. Oh, it comes down so nice. You know, the only instrument does. You could be there and feel the vibration of it. It's so it just goes all through your body. Now you met. George Benson in Buffalo, correct, at the Pine Grill? Pine Grill. Okay. You were backing up go-go dancers, is that true? (laughs) You're terrible. You weren't supposed to say that. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) But was it true? (laughs) Yeah, when George and I I started playing, uh, we went to New York. We had two songs. Clockwise and Secret Love. We got signed with Columbia Records. But when we got signed with Columbia, we were playing on 125th and 7th Avenue. It was called Palms Cafe, I think it was called. And the go-go dancers in there. And that was rough. Uh, so when, when John Hammond, we knew he came in, so we say. We're going to play some jazz now. We, so we started playing. And John Hammond and his wife, they were sitting there. And he wanted to sign us there in the club. He signed George up. And he signed me also up to Columbia Records. Now, see how angels are there? Lou Donaldson was recording. I had met him in Buffalo. So he was recording. And he needed someone. And he, George Benson and myself, and Idris Muhammad on drums. And we went to record. The connection was so great. Right from the beginning, felt so good. And uh, we made a hit. Alligator Boogaloo. from Columbia. Uh, so they called me John uh, John Hammond, uh, Frank Wolf. He called me, and then I left uh, Columbia, and I was playing with Blue Nose. And the record took off. Now I'm playing with George now, George Benson. When my records start going, now I'm playing with George, but now they're calling for me to do concerts and things. So I didn't have no group, so George would go out with me and help me out then because I was going out pretty fast, you know, moving pretty fast. And it felt 
I loved it, but George is, we were like, we are, he just called me a couple of days ago. We were like really close and it it felt bad when he wasn't there. We loved playing with each other. So. Yeah, you were part of that quartet. Yeah, that was. Did you speak the same musical language as George? Yes, yes. George Bennett and I speak the same language. Musically, we speak the same language. Well, I started developing my uh, sense of playing uh, with George. I had come from, uh, just like I said, I came from uh, Motown and stuff, that type of, and singing uh, gospels and all that stuff. So what happened, George had started playing early, six years old. He was real young. I started in my 20s. So I, I love jazz, so that's what happened. So we would go in the club, and I would go there earlier. And I would play. It's not time, but I would play. So when George comes, it's cold, and his hands be all cold. He has to try to get, catch up with me because I'm feeling good. I'm, I just start playing. <laughs> just jump on stage and start playing. So anything that he played, if I could remember a little of it, I would get it and then play it the next day by ear of what I hear. See? And that's how I learned when did you get to New York City? 63 or 64. What was New York like musically then? Oh, beautiful. You could not believe it. It's like everyone was there. Everyone that you ever thought you wanted to hear or see, they were playing. Like you have a strip, even in Harlem. You had clubs, boom, 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 clubs. Boom, 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 music, 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 music. So when we got there and hit Palms Cafe, we started going around, and everybody would play in these clubs. We, then we started playing at Count Basie's, Men's Playhouse, all of those places, the nice clubs up in Harlem, and downtown Slugs and all of those nice clubs, you know. So we got pretty known, and then we did um, Newport Jazz Festival. John Hammond got us on there. That was it. It was like, boom, took off. Did you schlep that organ with you when you went? <laughs> yes. Don't say that. Don't tell anyone that. It's a piece of furniture. Oh, my God. It's a piece of furniture. It's like and when it was time to go, everybody said, I'll be there in a minute. I'm going to the car. I'll be right back. I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be, I'll be sitting there like this and holding it. And I was waiting. Ain't nobody coming. So I learned how to move it by myself a lot. Well, a lot of times what we do, we go into towns and we would get people to help us. You would get drunks and everything to help us, you know, winos, give them a few dollars, two or three dollars, and they would help. But quite naturally, you would like, I, I, I don't do, I, I, I'll do it myself, you know, because they'd be high and they'd be trying to hold it and it's rough. You signed with Blue Note and you played with great musicians in sessions and also as a leader. Can you describe first what Blue Note Records was like then? Yeah, easy. One word, the best. It was the best, and still is. All the greats were there. Everyone practically that you can name, they were there, and you can't beat that. As a youngster, I just love playing music. You play because you love it. I didn't get into music because I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be rich because... You're already rich. That's a great feeling. That's the greatest feeling to go out and play, make people happy all around the world. Everywhere you go, places that you never thought you'd be, 
I don't see myself like some people see you. You know what I'm saying? They say they see you as this icon or this person like that. And you, I wonder who they're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's a great feeling, but I don't see that. I don't see it. I really don't. What do you see? I just see just like you and me. We all the same. When we go there and play, it's like a fire or flame that goes through my body. And I get so much enjoyment out of that. You can't get paid better than that. Let me ask you, when you're when you're playing at a concert, are you in conversation with the other musicians? Are you in conversation with the audience? Is it both? Both. Because, see, there are some musicians play for themselves. <laughs> they care less if you're up there or not because so all they want to hear is themselves. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, I do. And it's like, Look at me. No. If I hire you, I want to hear you. I don't hire you just to back me up and, you know, I enjoy backing you up too. I want to hear you. Give a person a chance. Give someone else a chance. And it's beautiful when you're hearing that. It's beautiful. See, I always thought if you can't go back to that place, you did something wrong. You better get your act together. You know, because you can stay at home and do that. So many people, they go out and they don't care. See, when I first started, Georgia tell you that, I used to play everything but what I did on record. I didn't want to play that. I did not want to play that because I just didn't want to play it. I personally like going here, going there, doing this, and I don't want to play the same thing that I did. I don't want to, just don't want to do that. When you're playing, because you improvise so much, uh, nothing sounds the same way twice, that must be challenging for the musicians who work with you. I'm sure rewarding, but... Oh, oh boy. They, they'll tell you, it's not easy. I, my hat's off to the musicians that, that play with me because... I don't never know where I'm going. I'm there at the, in the moment. So it's so much fun. Most music want to play the song that we did exactly like that. How? How am I do that? I can't do that. That was done. How do you feel? Play it the way you feel. Let me feel you. We can get into that too. And that's the beauty of it. You know, it don't have to be that way all the time. It just don't have to be. Be open. I've seen you play, and there are moments where I would swear you're surprised by what's yes. being played. Yes, yes, That's exactly what happens. I feel the same way the, the audience feel at that moment because, oh, okay. It's, it's so much fun when that happens to me. It's like, oh, that's... It's okay if it doesn't, mm, well, it feels so good. And because you don't write music, uh -huh. but because you compose. Yeah, I compose. Mm -hmm. So teaching the music that you compose, you do it by demonstrating? Yes. I yes. see. When you're teaching, you always listen to the, the artist who's playing, and you can help them by the way they're playing. You're saying, that's not right. How can you tell them that's not right when they went to school? They know the correct fingering, and they got this music down. 
that's not quite right, you know. I said, you didn't really mean what you just played, did you? He said, yes, what do you mean? I said, play it again. And they play it. I said, you didn't mean that. You just played it because you know that. Hmm, I can hear that. Just here, play here. You can't beat that. I don't care how much studying you do, you can't beat that. You've you've played with all variations of, of bands, big bands, quartets, but you come back to the trio a lot, basically, organ, guitar, drums. Can you talk about that configuration and how that works so well for you? I like that. I love the trio because it, it leaves a lot of space, a lot of space to experiment and play with. three people up there, you got to be careful because if I got, if I got 17 people, I want to hear everybody. And so you're not going to hear me very much because I'm going to let you play. I love, go ahead and play. You know, I want to hear you play. See, but with a trio or duo, you got to work. You have to work. And, and I can go this way without worrying about, are they going to make it with me? Are they going to turn here with me or, or go there, you know? Are they going to fall off the cliff? So many horns, they say, oh, 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 you know, just get in there and have fun. I love horns. I love the sound of them. Sounds so great. But you better have the music together when you're playing with horns. And you don't want it too tight. So it sounds sterile, you know. With a loose feel, a happy feeling that it's breathing. You've covered people outside of, of jazz, but you've you've done tribute albums to, you know, Jimi Hendrix music and Beck. What's what's the story behind those albums? Mm. To make a long story short, I'm a person who loves all music. A lot of musicians will play a song, they're thinking about a hit. I think about a song, I love that song, I'm going to play this song. Oh, this is a beautiful song. And I play it I, because I can hear myself play it before I even touch it. I can hear what it's supposed to sound like. Every genre of music is important to me. Country, Western, rock, uh, metallic, all of them, they're just as important as I am. That's the beauty in it. You might not like it, but each one of them got something, a story. Tell that story. You got a story to tell. You might not like it. Why? Why don't you like that song? Hmm. You don't like this song because is it the beat? Is it the way they sing? Take that song and put your feeling into it. Hmm. Can you do that? Some people it's hard to do that because they can only see it that way. Hmm, that's not the way it go. Yes, it does. <laughs> that's, again. It's me. That's where I go. So that's where it's going to be done. Take it your way. And that's the fun again. You happen to be one of the most sampled jazz artists around. Oh, it's terrible. The Beastie Boys, A Tribe Called Quest, 
Wu-Tang Clan. When, when did you first, how did you find out you were being sampled? <laughs> you don't want to hear this. Your statements back, people, you know, where you made money off of this, you, you did this and you read it and you say, what, what song is this? And then when you say, oh, that's what that is. Hip hop has really reimagined a lot of your music. It's, that's it's really right. You, that's, you can't beat that because you're hearing another view, another side. Of, that's why uh, other music is great. That's what they hear. You have to live the life and play that. And that's what's so beautiful about it. You returned to Blue Note after 45 years' uh, evolution. We never left each other. We never left. We were always together. Yeah, that was a happy occasion. And Don Wass, as you mentioned, was the producer. Very good. Very good producer. You know, the first cut on the album, Evolution, is 14 minutes long. It is. That's big. That is big. I had no idea on playing it, but then again, see, that was Don Waz. He didn't care. That's the way we used to do. You play, if it feels good, let it go. If it doesn't feel good, then you can get off of it, you know. And was that the first time you played with Robert Glasper? Yes. I knew him, but that's the first time. We How played. was that experience? Nice. Very nice. Uh, what it gets you is like, these are young people, young guys. They're like my grandsons. You know, it's like when you hear them play and then give you the feeling that you want on the song. Hmm. Okay. You've been listening. It's like they're very great musicians to grab that stuff like that. It was something, he did a wonderful job. The young guys, are, they're something else today. Yeah, he's, what, in mid-30s or something? Yeah, a baby. Yeah. That's a baby. <laughs> what advice would you have for a student who's, who really is thinking about a career in jazz? I'd say I don't think for them to take it lightly because... It's a struggle. It's something they have to believe in. The real truth about being a musician isn't easy. It's work because it's not at all like they might think it is. Enjoy yourself. Therefore, when they hear something, the guy playing, and they sound like, oh, wow. Oh, I wish I could play like that. No, you don't. No, you do not. Play what you know, play what you feel, and you'll be happier. Because you learn things from everyone. Everybody that you hear, you learn different things. And that's the beauty in it. And they're going to get depressed. They're going to play something that they're going to like. Everyone gets to that, that thing where they don't enjoy themselves. You play and you say, Oh, I sound terrible. But they don't stop then. You don't give up then. Because that's your learning space. That's where you push a little harder. Be hard on yourself. Doc, 
For you, what's the hardest part of your musician's life? Traveling. They pay me for traveling. Traveling is so difficult. And if you've been traveling like I have all these many years, it gets harder and harder to just to travel. Sometimes you have to go straight to sound check, or you might have to go and play as soon as you get there. You can't get a chance to go to the hotel. You go to the hotel when you finish after you sign autographs and loading equipment and stuff. It's early in the morning. And you have to get up and go to the next, drive to the next country or whatever. It's rough. But as soon as you get there and you play for the people, that's where your energy comes. It's like, wow, it's worth it. That's the beauty in it. But they're getting the wrong impression. If they think it's going to be just a great run, not like that. If they're out there for any other reason than to play, regardless of what happens around a certain part of the year, it's slow and slow. Are you able to hang? Being named a 2017 NEA Jazz Master, what does that mean? What it means is the greatest award you can get. You've been represented by people who love you, love your music, been watching and listening to you for many years, and they show their appreciation. You can't get a better feeling than that. What an honor, because you're not thinking, you're just doing, doing what you love and enjoying it. What better pay than to get this really a prestigious honor of being among the greats that's out here and that's doing the same thing to keeping music alive. And we have someone that's looking out for us, somebody that's hearing us. You cannot beat that. I'm very proud. Very, very proud. Thank you so much. Many congratulations. Oh, and it was such a pleasure to talk thank to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was 2017 NEA Jazz Master, Dr. Lonnie Smith. Come and celebrate Doc on April 3rd in Washington, D.C. at the NEA Jazz Masters Tribute Concert. It's free and it's fun. The festivities begin at 7.30 at the Kennedy Center. For information and free tickets, go to kennedycenter.org. You've been listening to Artworks produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.